everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Landry Fleming. And I'm Drew Johnson. And you're listening to Circle Up, a podcast series brought to you by Jackalope Theatre Company. Jackalope, in collaboration with the Chicago Inclusion Project, has developed Circle Up, a collection of new play readings that is dedicated to amplifying stories that are diverse in scope, as well as providing a safe harbor for evolving work. We interview Circle Up's playwrights about their lives, their plays, and their process, while including clips from the play reading itself. We are here interviewing playwright Isaac Gomez, who wrote Perk Up Elkhorn, a play that deals with the pervasive racism in America, from microaggressions to outright hostility, even from the most so-called progressive among us. All right, let's get to the interview with Isaac. Where are you from? So um, I'm originally from the border on far west Texas, El Paso, Texas, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Did you live there until you uh, like left for, for college? Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised. So I uh, lived there my whole life in this uh, neighborhood called the Lower Valley, which is sort of like... Um, um, when you look at the, the West, the tex- West Texas sort of like little point when mm-hmm. you get to like Las Cruces, New Mexico, the furthest neighborhood away from the point. So, you know, almost getting to the, like, it's in the desert. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then, um, and then I moved to Austin, Texas for a little bit, which is where I went to school. I think the biggest sort of cultural change for me was, you know, having grown up on the border, most of the people who I surrounded myself with were Mexican because that's just, you know, Mexican border. It's kind of what it is. Right. I, El Paso is a very isolated um, city from the rest of Texas. I mean, we're in a completely different time zone. Um, and so moving to Austin, it was like the first time that I was interacting with non-Mexican people, you know, which was awesome and also incredibly challenging at the same time, you know, given sort of race relations, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, br- what brought you here to Chicago? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've always sort of been a writer and um, sort of. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, when I was looking at like, you know, what next steps where I really wanted to move to a city um, where, you know, new plays was like a thing. And I thought for a long time I would, you know, as many often do, like move to New York and do that. And, um, but then by the time I got to, got around to it, I was like, no. And I'm also like an earth sign and I'm Mexican. So I just needed like some sense of stability. So then I was like looking for, you know, literary internships, you know, so that I could spend some time with other playwrights and really get a sense of how they work. And so I moved uh, here when I got the Goodman uh, theater internship in their literary department. And I was doing that, um, for, that fall, uh, up until the following spring, they kept me on to work on a play that I had been working on there, Rebecca Gilman's play, Luna Gale, which was super fun and, and to, to work on with her and with Bob. And then um, shortly thereafter, a position opened up uh, for the literary management job at Victory Garden Theater, which is where I spent like the sort of the next four years of, of my professional life was, was developing new plays and developing new plays with... Um, some of the most generous, brilliant, um, incredible playwrights in the American theater. And to be mentored by Che Yu, the artistic director, was like um, a complete dream. And so, you know, and, and I was still pursuing my playwriting at that time, but definitely not the way I am now. You know, I was really prioritizing the work there, which I'm glad I did, and I wouldn't take any of it back, you know. Um, che was so generous with giving me 
the time and space to work on my writing as as a, as he's as you know we both saw fit based on what was happening at the theater. Um, he's always so supportive of the artists and his staff. That's the kind of person he is. And as things sort of started to progress and move along and my sort of priorities shifted and, and things in my own writing started to take off, I knew I needed to, to, to step away for a bit, you know, and, and sort of pursue the playwriting full time, which has been, um, actually really incredibly awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The universe has its ways. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. So you're, you're doing playwriting full time now. Yep. That's amazing. It is. It is amazing. I mean, and I, again, I teach it to Paul, so that's sort of what helps me pay my bills. Mm-hmm. But yep. you know, the, there's a lot of I have a lot of projects up in the air right now. Um, two world premieres happening this spring. One that um, is uh, Albany Park Theater Project's um, upcoming play. The, I'm the first writer they're ever working with for that, which is super awesome. Oh, wow. um, for the uh, play called Ofrenda, and then um, uh, Haven Theater is producing the world premiere of my play, The Displace, that's going up in May and June, and then. Uh, La Ruta will be happening at Steppenwolf this fall. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I, oh I, my gosh. I just saw that the other day, and it's yeah. just so exciting. Thank it's, you. I, how does how does that even come about? Like, how how does that happen? It's, I mean, it's the same way with any other theater, you know, in that like, it's sort of, and and this was true, and you know, working a new play development at Victory Gardens and helping Chase's and plan for there. Like the the reality is, it's like it's never actually about. I mean, it is about the work for sure, but it's also about a lot of other things, you know, depending on what the priorities of the theater are and what they're trying to do, and um, and the kind of work that they're excited about in that moment that feels in line with the other shows they're programming and if they're an ensemble like what does that mean what does that look like you know and for Steppenwolf um you know Sandra Marquez had just become an ensemble member there the first Latina ensemble member and you know when she has sort of been talking with them about the kinds of projects she wanted to work on she's also directs you know she just directed um Tanya Saracho's Fade at Victory Gardens and Teatro Vista co-production as well and um, and she sort of had been in love with my play La, La Ruta for a long time. So between her and um, Seven Wolves literary manager, Polly Hubbard, who has been a huge fan of the play for a long time, and she and I are, 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 are dear friends, um, you know, wanting to sort of just see what would happen. And luckily for me, um, you know, Anna Shapiro and the people at Steppenwolf uh, were really excited about the idea. So, you know, they had... Um, yeah, they used to have this thing called First Look. They're sort of new play development um, programming, and now that's evolved into what they call Scout to allow more room for development to happen to not just not just once a year, but throughout the year, since their ensemble are very busy people doing mm. a lot of things everywhere. Yeah. Um, and my play La Ruta was the first one, and so we had a reading there last summer, and the you know it was, the reception of it was just so much more than I could have ever imagined. How does the community in which you're presenting your plays, um, how does it impact it? And and how does it impact the development of your plays? Yeah, pretty pretty greatly. More than more than I think I even realize myself. Um I've never considered myself like a community based or community oriented artist necessarily. Um, mostly because again, like I know such brilliant people who do that so like that is their thing. You know what I mean? Like I think about people like, you know, Christiana Colon and theaters like Free Street Theater and 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 um Aguijon Theater Company who are really rooted in the neighborhoods that they're that they're that they're in and connecting with the people there um in really deep and holistic ways. So when I so so I like I shy away from that because I don't I don't think I'm doing that. 
But what I am doing is um, when I think about the plays that I write, um, the plays that I write are often like, they're often about power. They're often about class. They're about who has more power when and why. Um, and they're often about not just necessarily questions I have. I feel like a lot of, a lot of writers say that, and it's not that that's not true. I mean, obviously like we write to try to figure some, to figure out, to figure it all out, you know <laughs> what I mean? Whether it's our stuff or the stuff of the world. But for me, what I've actually learned over the last couple of months, now that I'm doing this like, f like full time, full time is, um, my writing is actually about healing and trying to forgive um, which is why my plays are often like, even, even the funny ones are just really intense. They're like very intense narratives that are unearthing secrets, you know, is how I like to phrase it. And secrets that people tried to keep from me, secrets I've tried to keep from myself, secrets I've tried to keep from the world. Um, and so writing it on paper and working with, with people to make that happen, it's my way of like exercising those demons and trying to forgive just trying to forgive and trying to heal. So how the community ties into all of that is a lot of the time, I mean, we don't create work in silos, you know, the work that create, we create, whether or not we want or intended to impacts people beyond us. And a lot of the time in my attempts to understand other people, they have to be a part of that process. Um, otherwise it's just like, playing pretend, which I guess that's what theater is, but that's not really what I want it to be. In this first clip from the reading, Lori, the owner of local coffee shop Perk Up Elkhorn, Vicky, her friend and employee, Jeff, Vicky's husband, and Eric, Lori and Vicky's friend since childhood, discuss a recent girls' soccer game in which their school beat rival school Beloit via forfeit. However, the town newspaper neglects to give the full story. Anything good in that paper over there? Nope, same shit, different day. Yeah, that's hilarious. I'm stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything in there about the soccer game last minute? Nope, just says the girls won 5 0. Let me see that. Huh, that's weird. What is it? Well, the girls won because Beloit forfeited. What? Yeah, Beloit just walked off the field, didn't finish oh, the game. I, I heard about that. Walked off. Apparently, some Elko girls. We're yelling things at the Beloit girls. Like, right. they weren't yelling, and besides, I heard the Beloit girls are the ones that started it. I went with Karen, saw the whole thing. I heard one of the girls from Beloit clipped one of our girls right before the final buzzer. That didn't make the paper either. I don't remember seeing that. I mean, you know how girls can be. Just catty. I'm surprised they understood them. <laughs> I mean, you know, those Beloit girls can be rough, too. I've seen them. Have you seen them, Lori? Yeah, no, they're huge. They're pretty big for their age. What do you think? And they're, they're kids. Oh, probably the same thing they see our kids here. I don't think so. They're uh, definitely rounder. Unfair advantage. Well, it's sad they felt they had to walk off the field. Look, girls can be mean, you know? I know it. You know it. Everybody here knows it. But at the end of the day, it's just a game. And if they can't handle that, well, then I'm glad they got walked off. More room for us, for our girls. I'm not saying they were right to walk off the field. I'm just surprised that the part didn't make the paper at all. So my first question is simply that I was Googling Perk Up Elkhorn and it's a real coffee shop. Mm -hmm. Um because mostly actually is just trying to find information about you and the play. And I was like, oh, is this like a clever website he's created? <laughs> it's guerrilla marketing. <laughs> yeah. 
and then nope, it's a real coffee shop. <laughs> so, um, so is this just a fun coincidence, or is there a specific reason why you chose Perk Up Elkhorn? Yeah, no, it's very real. Yeah. Um. So the thing about Perk Up Elkhorn is it's a play I never intended to write. It's a play I never wanted to write. You know, I have like a notes on my phone, you know, the notes app on the iPhone. I have mm-hmm. a, a note that's pinned to the top that just says plays. And it's just like play idea after play idea. If and when I get inspiration, Prick Up All Chrome was never on that list. I was in an artist retreat in East Troy, Wisconsin, and I needed to borrow some Wi-Fi. And the Wi-Fi there was pretty spotty because, you know, it's like underground and you know people are just trying to... You know, yeah, you know how it is. So, <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, I'm, I have to submit. I was on a deadline for something else. And I was like, ah, I need, I need to borrow Wi Fi because I got to turn this in like two days ago. And so I just like yelped the low, the, the closest coffee shop with Wi Fi and Perk Up Alcorn was the first one. And it, and I, you know, I'm not from the Midwest. So, like these like little towns, I'm like, whatever. And so I drove there. It was like 10 minutes away from East Troy, another small town. Um, first time I ever heard of the Piggly Wiggly. Super. <laughs> <laughs> the great place. And, um, and, and so I ended up at Elkhorn and um, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, at this little coffee shop called Perk Up Elkhorn, where I met um, the owner of the coffee shop. And where what was supposed to be 15 minutes ended up turning into me going back there every day for the next like three or four days. Um, because I experienced some of the most like intense racism in a way that like I hadn't seen since driving by or spending time with family in like the Dallas Fort Worth, Texas, so, like East Texas, where things are super racist. Mm. Um, and Chicago's racist, but like they like you know it's couched in like liberalism and like you know go Cubs and you know, <laughs> and, and yay Boys Town, you know like that kind of thing. But you know at the end of the day, like the fundamentals are still there. And um, in a place like Elkhorn, where people largely don't look like me, um, you know, it's it's I don't blame them. That's the funny thing about it is I don't blame them. And my interactions with those people are very much what's in the play. I mean, you know, whenever we go into workshops, every developments of it, you know, I'm like, you know, I, you can't make that stuff up. Like a lot of it is word for word interactions with me and some of these people. Um, and it was scary, you know, but I was the storyteller in me. I was addicted and mostly because I wanted more than anything to understand them. You know, this is right before the election. Um, and I just wanted, I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to understand them. And they were having their first inaugural rib fest and um, <laughs> they had a new cold brew they were trying to try out and, um, and things were happening for them. And there was, you know, a case with these girls from Beloit, which is a more largely Latinx population. I'm told I've never been at well, this particular high school anyway. And they got walked off the field because the girls from Elkhorn were yelling, build that wall build that wall um, as the bullet girls were heading into the field and, and the bullet girls just 
you know, retaliated and then they had to forfeit and got kicked out, you know? And so I was hearing all of this and visiting Karen and her little bakery shop and, you know, the white bread she was selling there. And she was telling me about, you know, how there's so many job opportunities for me here. I should move here because, you know, hotels are starting to come up and, you know, there's a McDonald's on the street and there's just like real opportunities for people like me, you know, uh, which I was glad to hear. I was like, oh, okay, you know, that's great. <laughs> and, um, but again, like these people, that's the thing is they mean well, as everyone does, as every racist does, I think. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, so that's sort of what started, was there sort of the fundamentals around what started Perk Up Alcorn. And where I found a desperate need to write about it was in my attempts to understand whiteness and how whiteness fits into my world. Um, it is pervasive. I'm not white, but I engage with whiteness on a regular basis just by being a person in the world, a person of color. Every morning I wake up and I light my little Selena Virgencita candle and I say, Lord, please don't let me have to deal with any racism today. <laughs> and then I let go. And then, you know, every day something happens. Um, it just does, you know? And so that's part two. And then the final component is like, especially in the wake of, of this last political election, how many of my, you know, well-intended white liberal friends, um, want so desperately to do the right thing. And I understand that. I know that feeling as a man, I get it. But sometimes that attempt to do the right thing ends up doing the wrong thing. And Again, I don't blame them for that, but I do wonder, like, what is the line between white liberalism and white conservatism? What is the line between white liberalism and an act of violence? You know, how far are you willing to go to protect the people you love? Why are we so afraid about people we don't know? So sort of all of those things are things I think about when I think about this play. Before we continue on in this interview, um, if you haven't heard our first podcast, we'll just say it again. Drew and I are both white people, and we're talking about a play that deals with violence against people of color. So we are reading it through that lens, so it is important that our listeners know that um, and are aware. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you uh, talk about how much of this play is uh, based on something that you actually experienced. Um, so how has, how has the play changed since its initial inception. Yeah, it was interesting because I wrote the first draft very quickly. I wrote it in like two days while I was at this artist retreat and, and we sort of gathered and with these people who were mostly white, mostly white liberals, um, you know, so like, you know, we're all going to just, you know, be hairy and not use deodorant and like <laughs> be in the farm. And that's fine. Like, listen, <laughs> I was there, so I, I'm with you. You know what I mean? But like, again, like sometimes I think in that context, we forget like the implications of our own power or our own privilege regardless, um, because I'm not that kind of white person. Right. You know, I'm not my racist uncle. OK, maybe maybe you you are right. Like, But it's just different. So um so we had this like reading very informal of a first draft. I just wanted to just get it out and just hear it. And luckily I had like a plethora of white people to read it because there weren't a lot of people of color at this <laughs> retreat. And, um, and I remember the reading before the day before, you know, just out of courtesy, like when plays end, you applaud. It's like how that usually works. And in this, I remember when we finished this, it was dead silent. Cause also the ending was a little different then, but 
Yeah, just complete silence. And I remember getting like super anxious and, and self-conscious. And then as the discussion started to unfold, um, there was a lot of white guilt and a lot of white fragility and a lot of anger, a lot of white rage. I love the people who run this retreat. They're like dear friends of mine. And I think what they're doing in this is brilliant. Um, you know, it's hard. Like, how do you create areas of protection, you know, when, when there's no way to guarantee that that's, there's just no way to promise that, you know? And so I was just like, I'm too, I know I was too raw to stay and try to deal with that. So I just like packed my bags and drove back to Chicago that night, you know? What's hard about plays like this, plays like Kevin Douglas's Plantation, which is currently running at Looking Glass, plays like Janine Neighbors' Welcome to Jesus, which happened at American Theater Company last season, are people of color writing about whiteness and white people are having a hard time connecting to it because they just, it's hard, man. You know, you're like, but do I see myself? And then when it's really painful, you're like, no, no, it's not me. <laughs> and so, um, and I don't blame them, you know, but it is, it is a really real feeling. And so a big goal for Vanessa and I from, from jump was like, how can we alleviate that? And that's sort of really, that's sort of been our biggest sort of like North star for the development of this play. And, and where I think it's at right now, which is, I think at its strongest. So, you know, a lot of fictionalizing of, of narratives, you know, like Pedro in the play, he is very much me, but he's also not me. And these people, you know, I, I always, you know, they are also me and, but they're very much not me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was this a conscious representation of white people's complicity as a whole regarding violence against people of color? Yes and no. I think I think it didn't start that way. And then as I worked on it, yes. So it was, you know, like, I think our biases are so strong. And I say our because I'm included in that. You know, everyone has bias. And they really do guide a lot of our decision-making processes um, in life. You know, where street am I turning into today if I'm driving? Where am I sitting on the train? Um, what am I eating you know, our biases largely shape everything we do. We don't even think about it. It just happens. And biasy isn't rooted necessarily on a deliberate conscious choice, but it's based on like how, like how we were taught. You know, there's some really interesting studies coming out of UT Austin right now that prove that we start to internalize race as early as 18 months. That's young. That is like, you're literally a baby. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it is traumatic. And when I think about trauma, especially trauma in my place, like I'm not one to include it gratuitously. Like it does serve a larger purpose and much like American history, like it is at the backs of people of color, primarily women of color in which like, and trauma against them in which like any evolution of our entire existences has had to happen at the expense of them. Um, and this is an example of that. The question becomes, what do they do with it? And again, the argument I'm trying to make is that like, even when you think you're different, you're just not. 
the second clip, our characters are having a conversation about a black man on the street that Vicky found frightening and why she felt that he posed a threat to her. Eric, our lone white liberal, has just accused Vicky of being racist, which she vehemently denies. What do you think, Pedro? That sounds like to you? Huh? What do you think about all this? <laughs> Sometimes we think we're afraid of people because of what the news wants us to believe. Sometimes things and people might seem scarier than they actually are. Maybe they were afraid of you too. That's <laughs> impossible. Historical precedents. This sound familiar to you? No. Why would it? Emmett Till was killed for talking to a white woman. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Things like that don't happen in Elkhorn. Maybe not anymore, but they probably, but they probably used to. If you stop and think about it, really, really think about it, it was a lot closer to us than you think it was. The civil rights movement happened. We had the Obamas! And white supremacists are marching on campuses, burning tiki torches like it's a luau. How many something. times do I have to say it? That's not Elkhorn. Nationwide, black people are being killed at a disproportionate rate. Disproportionate to what? I've never quite understood that. It's about frequency. Yeah, I still don't really get that. How can you say that? Your son is black. He's also half white. But he's still black. His chances are still the same. Now, this is this is different than Emmett Till and Pedro, the truth be told. I'm really offended that you would even make that comparison. I really am. I'm sorry I didn't mean to offend anybody, but here's the thing. <clears throat> sorry, Pedro. Can I just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, Vicky, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. How do you think this is different from what happened to Emmett Till? Uh, no one was murdered. It's not about the murder, Vicky. It's about the... Do you remember what happened to him? What they did to his face? That type of violence came from somewhere. It lived within somebody. You make it sound like he's disfigured or something. <coughs> he was. Oh, yeah, no, right. Did you not know this? Of course I did. So what happened to him? He was killed. What happened to him? How was he killed? I'm asking you as a friend. I can call you a friend, right? How was Emmett Till murdered? Yeah, I don't know, do you? It's not your fault. The books don't teach you this. Emmett Till was 14 years old. He was visiting family in Money, Mississippi. August 1955, scorching hot. He was allegedly flirting with a white cashier woman at a grocery store. Four days later, two white men kidnapped him, beat him to a pulp, shot him in the head, and dumped his body in the river for talking to a white woman, an act punishable by death at 14 years old. She lied, by the way, the white woman. She lied about the whole thing. There's a story about it on NPR and everything. You can look it up if you want to. So yeah, chances are they were probably afraid of you too. Do you have any particular rituals when it comes to your writing? 
Oh, I wish. I wish I did. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny because like I'm, I'm still really learning about myself as a writer in terms of my own process. And mm-hmm. that like, um, you know, prior to this, much of my writing again happened while I was still working at Victory Gardens. And so that meant that a lot of my writing had to happen between the hours of like midnight and six in the morning. Oh God! And so, you know, I'm like, oh, right. I have a deadline tomorrow. Uh, I guess I'm going to go home and write. (laughs) And that's, I think that's largely why my place has such urgency because I just couldn't wait. (laughs) I'm like, listen, like if you're in the, if you're in the scene, something's got to happen. So we're just going to go. We're just going to (laughs) go. And then actors are like, oh my God, everything's on fire. Always. (laughs) And it's true. In my plays, everything is always on fire. And what I'm learning is they're on fire because it's how I live my life. Everything's on fire for me at any moment of the, of, of the day. Um, I And which, even though you may not read it off the page, but that's, that's also very Chekhovian, right? Is that like everything is always on fire for these people. Sometimes it just depends on how willing they're, how willing they are to show it. And so since leaving Victory Gardens, which was last August, um, I finally had the opportunity to start like really figuring out what my process is. So, you know, trying out writing in different times of the day and, you know, like, do I, you know, I always create a Spotify playlist that that's def- that's definitely a yes. Um, and it's less, and it's like, for me, it's the playlist always evokes like the arc of the play, you know? So like for Perk Up Elkhorn, we start with Nina Simone's Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, um, which for me also feels like my playwrights know for this play, Right. Like, don't let me be misunderstood. And then it ends with Lana Del Rey's cover of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. Um, Because, well, covers are interesting things, aren't they? (laughs) And then listening to music and getting back into the world of the play, that takes, I think people misunderstand how long it takes. It takes like hours, especially if you're working on more than one play at a time. You're like, okay, I have to get back here. All right, I'm in the coffee shop. Okay, let's see. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's 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 like that, you know. But I do largely like to write in public spaces. Weirdly enough, I think, um, I get really stimulated by people because I think what makes me a good writer is that I'm a good listener. So um, I, 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 that's why I love eating alone. You know, lunch or dinner, I love eating alone. I go to places and I just eat alone, and I'll just, I'll just listen. Um, are there any uh, current playwrights that that you feel like people should keep an eye out on? Like like any favorite kind of young playwrights? Yes, absolutely. So I have this playwrights group um, called El Semillero. So what happened was when I moved to Chicago, one of my biggest dreams was like, I want to create like a Goodman playwrights unit type of vibe, but specifically for Latinx playwrights. Um the hilarity of it is like now I'm in the playwrights unit at the Goodman and there it's been a blast, but you know, really wanted to create something concrete. And so I'm, I created this group along with the other co-creative director of the Alliance of Latinx theater artists, Nancy Garcia. And so we created this playwrights group called El Semillero, which means um, like this, like the seed bed, the seedling. Um, I, I credit the name to our founder, Tanya Saracho, cause she's the one who, who suggested the title. I think it might be wrong. Sorry. guys. If I, if I lied. Um, but, you know, and we started off like with six and then grew to eight and now we're to 10. It's pretty selective. But every 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 time we have op- avail- uh, we open up slots, like we get like 40 to 50 applicants every time, which tells me there's like a real hunger for it here. Yeah. Um, but these writers, so we meet weekly. We meet on Saturdays for three hours every Saturday and we write together for about an hour and we share pages for the the latter part of our time together. 
Um, we share professional development resources. We commiserate, you know, especially during rejection season, which just happened. Valentine's Day is always the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but these, these other writers are brilliant and they're doing such good, rich work. So let's see if I can remember all of them off the top of my head. So we've got, I'm, we got me, you got Nancy Garcia Losa. We've got Ryan Oliveira. We got Lucas Garcia. We've got Jose Nateras. We've got Nelson Rodriguez, who's also the artistic director of Pride Films and Plays. Um, we've got Michelle Rodriguez, who does mostly musical theater. She's our first big musical theater writer, and she's incredible. Hmm. She composes as well. We've got Crystal Ortiz. We've got... Oh, my God. This is so terrible. It's not because I don't care... You know, I feel there's like so many. Understand. Yeah. <laughs> you, guys, you guys get it. I'm so sorry, whoever, whoever I forgot. It's not that you don't matter. You mattered to me. I promise. Is there like a, a website where people can yes. find the roster or something? Absolutely. If you go to altachicago.org and then you go to programs and you click El Semillero, everyone's headshots are there, everyone's bios are there. Um, I'm just like trying to, I'm like making, I'm like rambling until the, the audience, but no, it's, it's, it's gone. My memory is terrible. I always have to ask Nancy. I'm like, who are we, who, who still needs <laughs> sharing today? Where are we at? Who do I need to text? Cause there's just so many of us, you know, but they're all doing such good and different work, like form wise, content wise. Like you think you, you think you think, you know, but man, they're the, they're the real deal. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, we talked about what's coming next for you with Steppenwolf, but is there anything else that you'd like to to tell us about coming forward for you? Um, no, I think we covered all of it. Keep your eyes open for some more exciting news via the East Coast. Um, mysterious. Mysterious. <laughs> and and yeah, it's 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 an exciting time to be a writer. Um, and here we go. Thank you so much uh, for talking with us today. We really, really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, of course. Guys. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this glimpse into Isaac's play and life. We also want to push the next project for Jackalope, Ike Coulter's The Light Fantastic, running from May 8th through June 16th, and the final circle-up reading of our 2018 season, Red Bike by Caridad Spitch, on May 7th at our Frontier Space. The 2018 Jackalope Gala will be at Broadway Cellars on June 2nd. For more information, visit jackalopetheater.org. And if you enjoyed listening to Landry and I, please check out our comedy podcast, You Simply Must, where we challenge each other to try something new every week. We just recorded our 100th episode, so go back and dig through the vault. You can find You Simply Must on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. We'd like to extend a special thanks to the Chicago Inclusion Project, the Edgewater Chamber of Commerce, and you, our audience. Thanks for listening. <laughs>